Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. Today, the latest report on mitigating the climate crisis by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's been delayed by disputes over the continued role of fossil fuels and funding for developing countries. This report is known as Section 3. Section 1, published last August, showed the world only had a small chance of keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. The second report, published a few weeks ago, outlined the catastrophic impact of failing to reach that target. And Section 3, which is due sometime today, is all about how we stay below 1.5. We'll hear shortly from Chitanya Kumar, Head of Environment and Green Transition at the New Economics Foundation. Welcome your thoughts as well if you're listening live on Byline Radio. You will need to use your phone. In the bottom left-hand corner, you will see a microphone icon. Just tap on that to request access. And if you've got a comment to make or a question to ask, by all means, do so. And before we get cracking as well, just a reminder that Byline Radio, where you might be listening live, and the Byline Times podcast, where you might be listening on catch-up, come from the Byline Times. We're funded by ordinary people like you. There's no oligarch, no corporate sponsor, no traditional proprietor behind what we do. We're simply journalists who set out to tell the truth as we see it, but based on fact and based on evidence. And if that's something that you support, well, please consider taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. You'll find details of how to do that on our newsbreaking website. That's at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And that'll tell you all you need to know about how to subscribe and support Byline Radio, the Byline Times podcast, Byline TV, and that website as well. That's at bylinetimes.com. Let's talk then about section three of the Intergovernmental Panel on climate change the report which has been delayed and that in itself might be telling which is going to tell us how we mitigate climate change how we combat it as i say we've got chitanya kumar with us chitanya is the head of environment and green transition at the new economics foundation chitanya good morning to you how are you doing you're right Morning, Adrian. Yeah, Can you hear me? loud and clear. Excellent. And uh, Chitani, as I say, before we get into the, the practicalities of what the report might say, we were by now hoping to have been discussing the report itself. It was due out, I think, originally on Sunday evening, certainly at 10 o'clock on Monday morning. It's now been delayed again. Hopefully it will be out later on Monday. But the political horse trading is perhaps in itself telling in terms of how we were treating and regarding climate change. That's right, Adrian. I think the the joke on Twitter was um, the journalists who were tracking this issue, um, the constant email they kept getting every half an hour was how the embargo copy would be delayed by another half an hour. Um, so it was it was um, we, we were expecting this report at least an embargo copy yesterday. Uh, it's now delayed till about 4 p.m. But I must say, I'm impressed, nonetheless, that they've managed to get it over the line because this is perhaps the most critical uh, um, aspect of this multiple reports that the IPCC has come out so far. Because we know climate change is, you know, the evidence is already out there, the impacts are already being felt. The biggest question, the biggest piece of the puzzle here, of course, is how do we tackle this issue? How do we cut carbon emissions? Or in other words, how do we mitigate climate change? And this is what this report is going to talk about. Um, the horse trading you refer to, of course, is the the 
inherent challenge of dealing with this global crisis where you've got Western nations or developed countries that have obviously been emitting a lot more carbon historically that are most responsible for this challenge. And of course, you've got the developing countries in Asia and Africa that are rightly claiming their right to emit more carbon because they need to develop as well. So getting all these countries around the table and agreeing on a set of uh, texts and lines that basically say this is how we cut carbon collectively as, as, as a human species, if you will, is, is not straightforward. So we had India, my home country, uh, essentially put some clear conditions, clear sort of lines in the sand, which said any steps on mitigation ought to follow direct transfer of finance, lots of finance, from developed countries to developing countries, because the transition to net zero or clean technologies isn't free, isn't cheap. So that cost that will be incurred by these countries, it'll have to be paid by developed countries. So that's a key condition that India, for example, has put in. Saudi Arabia, for example, is, is another country that's stepped up to say fossil fuels will have to play a role uh, all the way till the end. Um, how? It's unclear at this stage, but as you can imagine, it's an uh, oil nation, it's a petro state. A lot of its wealth comes from oil and gas. So countries like that are obviously ensuring that oil and gas remains part of the mix, energy mix, all the way till 2050 and beyond. How we achieve that, of course, is another big challenge. Um, and we'll perhaps get into that a bit further. But the report will certainly talk about what is called carbon capture and storage. Uh, that is the controversial bit, if I can say, of the report that we'll expect later today of how we actually sequester or rather uh, remove carbon from the atmosphere through technology. I think that's going to be quite quite interesting. And how reliant will we be on those technologies? I think that is a key question that we'll look out for an answer in this report. Yeah, well, uh, some very interesting points in there. And uh, the devil is always in the detail, isn't it, in terms of these? Yes. But just take me back to section one then, because as I mentioned, this is a kind of three-stage report. This is section three. And section one, published last August, showed that the world only had a small chance of keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. And for anybody listening who doubts whether there is... Uh, a scientific consensus over this issue, there is now no doubt in terms of mainstream scientists that climate change is real, that it is man-made, and that to exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius warming could potentially be catastrophic for our planet. Yeah, I think the, the report was fairly unequivocal and clear uh, that the window is certainly closing. But it's also not perhaps fair to be very alarmist about this. There's a difference between obviously sounding an alarm, which is what the report did, but uh, a lot of the commentary that followed basically made it sound quite alarmist in the sense that we had eight years or nothing. So if we did not cut carbon emissions by a certain date, by a certain percentage, um, we're doomed and all else has failed. So I think that narrative is something that we have to sort of try and carefully walk away from and avoid. And today will be the same challenge with the media because since that report, emissions have actually gone up. Um, 2021 saw the highest uh, emissions on record ever uh, in history. 
uh, when we known climate change has been happening and it's getting worse for the last three decades, you'd expect emissions to be coming down. But obviously, they've, they've gone up uh, because of the sort of pent-up demand, uh, uh, latent demand through the pandemic. So emissions have gone up because of the current crisis in, in Ukraine. Um, it would be safe to assume that emissions perhaps might go up again this year and even next year. So we are we are looking at a scenario where um, uh, seven years and cutting emissions by about half, global emissions by half in about seven years is going to be quite a feat. Um, however, the, the key thing, I think what the report will state is uh, we're not out of options. I think the, the clean energy revolution that we're already seeing, the wind, solar, changes in transport sector, changes in the way we eat, uh, way we heat our own homes, all of that is is you know undergoing some dramatic shifts, and I think the report is essentially going to ask for acceleration of all of that. Uh, quite a startling fact, which I learned uh, a few weeks ago, was ninety percent of all the new power capacity that was added in twenty twenty, ninety percent of that was renewables, so wind, solar, biomass, etc. Um, so we're already on the right path. The question is, can we scale up and accelerate much faster? I think that is the key question that this report will will highlight. Sure. And I mean, that is very positive, isn't it? But I suppose you say that you're keen to walk away from an alarmist narrative around this. The yeah. PCC report is quite threatening in its language, the earlier reports, aren't they? And yeah. they, do, they do warn of catastrophe i mean you you don't question that that is where we're heading if we don't change are you i suppose i'm worried about what actions it'll invite um because talking about catastrophe can potentially lead to paralysis uh in public policy and and you know in the mindset of the people uh, and the general public uh, to essentially being told there's nothing you can do and catastrophe is is all but inevitable, I think is wrong and, and and dangerous even. So I suppose my fear is less about the fact that change needs to happen and, and things are going to get worse, but more about how we present it, how we talk about it, and how we need to ensure that every time you talk about these dire scenarios, they have to be followed by solutions that we can you know adopt and undertake and if you just give one side of the picture i fear you might alienate a lot of people and drive you know paralysis where it's like oh what can we do about this clearly the scientists are saying yeah, we are sort of yeah. out of hand so, so you're not disputing no, findings, no. but it's more about still encouraging people to believe that change is possible rather than a sense of hopelessness engulfing us all. That's, that's precisely it, Adrian. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So in terms of what we can do then, and this is the at the centre of the Section 3 of the IPCC report that is due today, we, we get to this world of mitigation. And, and you mentioned carbon capture. Now, going back into the early uh, mid-1990s, I used to present an environmental programme on the BBC, a, a little show called Dirty News on Radio <laughs> 5 Live. And I remember that back then carbon capture was being talked about. But I'm not sure, as somebody who's had that awareness going back more than a qu quarter of a century, 
that carbon capture is really widely understood. I'm not sure that I really understand it or indeed that it is possible. So just talk us through what it is, how it might work, whether it does work and what it could mean for the planet. I think the, the, the first and the most obvious thing to say is carbon is being captured naturally every day. Uh, trees and the oceans are the biggest sink, as we call it, uh, the biggest uh, sources that sort of suck carbon from the atmosphere. So we've already have uh, the most effective way of capturing carbon and storing it uh, naturally uh, in the form of trees, forests and, and oceans. The challenge, of course, is we've been polluting our oceans, reducing their capacity to soak carbon. And of course, as, as we all know, we've also been uh, depleting uh, the forest cover in the world as well. So we're reducing the amount of uh, natural sinks that we've got for carbon. Um, in that context, we've obviously realized that the amount of carbon we're putting out is far greater than the amount of carbon that we can naturally remove from the atmosphere. And that is when the role for uh, technologies and artificial ways of removing carbon come into play. Um, you're right, carbon capture and storage, or CCS, as we like to say, um, has been around for a while. Uh, it's, it's not a technology that is brand new, but there's a whole world of difference between seeing something function in a laboratory and seeing something function in the real world. Um, I, I did my slight segue, if I may, but I did my master's in innovation policy and theory at Sussex University. And there's a very interesting phrase called the value of depth. Uh, it sounds quite morbid, but the, the, the notion there, the concept there is there is a value of depth that every technology has to pass through um, where it has to start from the lab phase and eventually go through the value of depth and eventually make it through the other side where it's commercially viable. And most technologies die in, in the value of death. They don't make it to the other side. Uh, that's because of a variety of factors, because there's a lot of promise when you're testing something in the lab, but ultimately it might not see the light of day in, 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 in a commercially viable way. Now, CCS is sort of in that stage at this point. Um, around the world, we've basically got about 27 CCS plants in operation as of now. Um, the kind of scale that we need to reach uh, by 2050 is at least 100 times of that, if not more. So the commercial viability of that is is quite a challenge. And how do we ensure that there's enough incentives, the market is right, perhaps, or there's enough public funding, whole sorts of other business models that need to fall in line for this technology to take off? Um, and that is at a big if at this point. Like People like me are extremely concerned about uh, an excessive reliance, let's say, on this technology, uh, because if it fails, um, then then we're leaving ourselves with very little room to maneuver and get out of this mess. I'm happy to speak more about how the technology actually works. But yeah, no, listen, I'm I'm really fascinated by this, and uh, never never be afraid of you know dropping your PhD into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, genuinely, I'm I you know I I'm I'm a gog. I'd love to know how this could work, how it might work, even if at the moment it, it doesn't entirely work. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, as, as the name suggests, the carbon capture and storage, the idea is um, to capture carbon. And there are three ways of doing that. One is post-combustion, uh, uh, in this case, post-burning of 
a fossil fuel, say coal or gas or oil. And once you've burnt, obviously you're releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere before it reaches the atmosphere. So in the chimneys of power plants, you install certain technologies, certain kits called scrubbers that scrub out the carbon dioxide, pump it through a pipe, and then you store it in a safe place. And I'll get to the storage in a second, but that's one way of doing that after combustion. Um, The second is pre-combustion or pre-burning of the fossil fuel, um, where before burning it, you treat the fossil fuel in a way where you remove the uh, carbon out of that, you remove the carbon dioxide out of that, and then again, you pump it through pipes, through other forms of storage, uh, eventually. And the third is um, through oxygen. You basically use oxygen, you oxidize the chemical um, that you're burning, and you create hydrogen in the result and you then remove carbon dioxide in the process as well so these are the sort of three main ways that you can remove carbon dioxide from artificially through technology from uh, a certain fossil fuel the, the challenge of course is as i've said we've, we know this thing works and we've done it the question is about scale but another challenge of course is about storing it because we're talking about copious amounts of carbon dioxide that we'll be storing now and we need to find safe places for that um most uh, uh, uh currently where we store carbon is largely undersea uh, uh under the sort of bed rock bed and where we've got holes in 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 uh, the, the stone underneath the sea that's where you sort of try and save uh, and store carbon the challenge of course is it's a big if uh, whether it's it's safe and reliable at this stage. Not because it hasn't been done, it is being done as we speak, but the volume of carbon dioxide that we are set to store in the coming decades uh, could open up the risk, could open up the possibility that some of the storage might not be uh, in there for long. Because if you store carbon, you have to have some sense of guarantee that it's set to stay there for at least another millennium uh, if not more, you know, you don't want to sort of relegate this problem for future generations, where they end up <laughs> uh, having 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 carbon uh, being emitted uh, on Mars because we've decided to store it uh, without much safety around it. So yeah, this- I mean, you could potentially, if it isn't safely stored, have, I suppose, the equivalent of a, a nuclear cloud. You could have a carbon cloud being released, and the climate change that you're seeking to mitigate by carbon capture would be frustrated by that. You'd have carbon going up in vast quantities into the atmosphere and possibly because it's released in one great big go, that that could have, again, potentially catastrophic eff- effects. Yeah, and and it, it's, it's not too difficult to imagine uh, that outcome because some of that is already happening with what we call permafrost um, in, in, say, Siberia, for example, where for millennia um, there was a very safe cover of ice that was covering methane, which is another global warming uh, uh, greenhouse gas that covered methane underneath this huge thick permafrost because of climate change, because of global heating. We are thawing that permafrost, we're melting that permafrost. And as a result, the underlying methane is coming out gradually. And if you ask most scientists, the biggest thing that they're concerned about, at least one of the biggest things they're concerned about, is 
the thawing of that permafrost and the sudden and, and massive release of methane, which is a far more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, 20 times more potent than, green, uh, than, than carbon dioxide. Releasing that on Mars uh, can accelerate climate change. It can sort of take us towards 1.5 and beyond rather quickly. So that scenario is sort of at play because yeah, of the and, carbon... And the, this yeah. is why I think many environmentalists, many people who would consider themselves green in one way or another, are inherently opposed to carbon capture. They believe that it addresses the problem at the wrong end and we simply need to stop using fossil fuels in the degree to which we're using them at the moment. Yes, and I have some sympathy for that um, because these, these these are experiments at a planetary scale that we are suggesting uh, in order to tackle this problem. And they come with massive risks because that's the nature of the experiment we are undertaking. So demand reduction is, is a sure, short way of cutting your consumption, cutting your demand for fossil fuels and therefore burning less of it and therefore contributing less to climate change. So I can totally sympathize with that approach, but it's easier said than done, of course. You know, to, to go to someone in, in India, uh, again, like I said, that, that's my home country. And every time I go back and have a conversation about this, I'm, I'm reminded rather rather acutely and sharply that uh, who who is the best to basically tell us how we ought to grow, how we ought to develop. Um, we, we will burn the, the resources that we have underneath our feet. And that is our right, so to speak. So Yes, um, and, and countries like India, developing countries, will look at the West not only as it is now, still pumping fossil fuel into the atmosphere, precisely. but yeah. as the home of the Industrial Revolution, which really pioneered the mass burning of fossil fuels. Our wealth today here in the United Kingdom and in other European countries is founded on the burning of fossil fuel. And it's a little bit hypocritical of us now to be turning around to countries like India, which seek to develop and say, you can't burn fossil fuel in order to become a wealthier country than you are today, when we ourselves have done that, place the planet in jeopardy and reap the benefits of doing so economically. Exactly. And that's why it's a bit of a catch-22 situation when it comes to geopolitics of climate change. Um, the, 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 you'd imagine the most effective way of requesting or, or seeing change in other countries is to model that change yourself. So if you've got the UK that is about to approve a new coal mine in Cumbria or about to initiate a new uh, wave of licensing for new oil and gas – that just sends out the wrong signal. That clearly says you are not interested in cutting your own carbon domestically. The expectation that we have to cut carbon uh, to tackle this collective problem is is you know unreasonable, and anybody would get, understand that where they're coming from. So I think it's the, the Western countries, uh, the developed countries that have the wealth, that have the resources and the technologies to transition rather quickly, uh, ought, ought to really do that. And sending these sort of mixed signals when it comes to investing in further fossil fuel exploration and extraction is, is just the wrong way to go about it. Yes. And then, of course, you have countries such as Saudi Arabia, which have a great strategic 
importance to the West. We've seen people like Boris Johnson and Joe Biden going to Saudi Arabia, asking for them to release more oil following the Russian invasion of Ukraine because the West no longer wants to be reliant on Russian oil. Saudi Arabia is geopolitically, strategically important. So if Saudi Arabia says the scientists want to restrict our oil production, but actually, you know what, United States, you know what, United Kingdom, we don't want to because that will undermine us economically. Whatever the scientists say, that is a real-time, real-world political problem for our leaders. Exactly. Getting the Saudis, the Russians, or or other sort of petro-states around the table. Let's not forget, the United States is the largest producer of fossil fuels uh, in the world right now. Um, So it's it's, it's not just a Saudi problem. The US is is very much a contributor uh, as of now. Yeah. Um, But it's it, but it has to be done. I mean, if you look at Saudi uh, Arabia, uh, they've got this massive sovereign wealth fund that they've created over over the last few years. Um, that is pretty much oil money, but they're diversifying that. They're investing that in a lot more renewables, a lot more solar, a lot more alternatives uh, to fossil fuels because they know the market for fossil fuels is diminishing. The high price that the countries in the West pay for Saudi oil um, is is currently very high, so they're sitting pretty at this point, but it won't stay high forever. Uh, and as we move away from you know our, our gas guzzling vehicles towards more electric cars, for example, the reliance on Saudi oil perhaps will go down as we heat our homes less with gas and more with electricity and and offshore wind and solar. Our reliance on um, uh, you know Russian gas will go down. So the dependence on these countries, uh, certainly from the West, is is going down, and that's why you see geopolitically Russia pivoting more towards. The, Chi- the Chinese, Indians, uh, and other Asian countries, because that's where they see the future of their uh, market. That's where they see the potential for them being able to sell more Russian gas and oil, not Europe and the Western countries, because they know it's a diminishing market at this point. So it does open up a whole suite of interesting geopolitical complex challenges. Um, but it's, yeah, it, for, for these countries, it's an existential choice at this point. Yes. And um, I'm conscious of your time, but this is a really fascinating uh, conversation, Chaitanya. Um, If we don't go down the route of carbon capture, or if that proves economically unviable, and as you say, in large scale, this is still experimental technology, even though we know it might work in lab conditions, and it would be a a kind of planet-wide experiment. If we don't go down that route, or if that proves to be unfeasible, what practical steps can we start taking today to mitigate climate change? But you leaving me the toughest question. <laughs> um, it's oh come on, man! Come on. <laughs> it's um, of course as as we discussed just a few minutes ago about cutting demand. I think we need to just think about radical ways of of cutting energy demand. Um, we we seeing you know um, I, I I don't want to bring the pandemic because it's false parallel uh, false analogy but certainly it opened up new avenues for reducing air travel for example and how we can have business meetings across continents using zoom or skype or what have you so um i think the, the it, it, new possibilities have opened up in terms of how we can reduce 
uh, our demand, reduce our energy consumption. And I think we just need to sort of accelerate those trends a bit more. Um, we've seen, you know, active travel, certainly in the UK, uh, take up uh, a bit further, more cycle lanes, more public transport, etc. We need to see a lot more of that in, in the coming months and years. So I'd say that there's certainly ways where we can reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, but it it certainly can't happen with individuals taking lead by themselves. I think we need a lot more intervention from states, from governments, uh, to to direct this transition, to direct this uh, reduction in consumption and energy demand. Without that, you basically have uh, massive, firstly massive inequality uh, in terms of the way we consume energy and lead to yeah further acceleration of climate change, which is obviously something that we need to avoid. Um, I'm afraid I don't have a better answer than that, but we need to find creative ways, new ways, radical ways perhaps of cutting our energy demand. Chitanya, really appreciate your time uh, today. Thank you so much. That's Chitanya Kumar, Head of Environment and Green Transition at the New Economics Foundation. We will be uh, having a a follow-up Byline Radio live and Byline Times podcast once we know what the IPCC have finally recommended in their report on mitigating climate change. But I thought it was just really important to set the context to understand the ways in which the politics might interfere with the science and so on. Uh, Chaitanya Kumar, Head of Environment and Green Transition at New Economics Foundation, doing that job admirably, I thought. You might be listening to this live on Byline Radio or you might be listening on Catch Up via the Byline Times podcast. Do stay tuned to our Twitter feed at Byline Radio. And just a reminder that we are supported by the Byline Times, free and fearless journalism reporting without fear or favour. Please support our work if you can by taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. Go to bylinetimes.com to find out more about subscriptions and memberships. That's bylinetimes.com. And thanks very much indeed as well to Harvey White for his immense production help with the podcast. Thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll be back a little bit later around nine o'clock UK time tonight if you're listening live with an update on the IPCC report. Thanks very much indeed for listening. Cheers now. Bye-bye.